We're in Romans 1, as, as noted. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our focus this morning will be on the last three verses of that passage that we have read, verses 5 to 7 of Romans 1. And there are a number of words that are repeated in that passage, and those words are certainly of importance. The name of Jesus gets in there twice. Grace is mentioned twice as well, but there is another term found twice that most American believers, I find, are not as familiar with, but we should be. And that is the term calling. The term is there in verse 1 as well, where Paul says he was called as an apostle, but in our key verses, Paul says the Roman believers are also the called of Jesus Christ. And then a few words later, there it is again, called as saints. So this morning, I would have us open up this important New Testament concept. We will see that it is one that speaks to our sense of identity, our understanding of who we are as followers of this Jesus. First, however, let's walk down a couple of side roads that also speak to the matter of our identity. These are in verse 7, where Paul is addressing the believers in Rome, but by extension, he's addressing all of us who love Jesus, and how he describes us should shape our identity. He says that believers in Christ are beloved of God, loved by God. Isn't that fantastic? Who are you? Who am I? I, Are you male or female or trans? Are you a mom? Are you an engineer? Are you a Pittsburgher? What is your sense of identity? God's Word says that we are beloved of God. (laughs) I don't know if you can tell, but that's a t-shirt. And I think that'd be a good t-shirt to get, don't you think? Put that out there, Beloved of God t-shirts. If you read the Gospel of John, you find out that the apostle who wrote that gospel never refers to himself in his own gospel as John. He doesn't even use the self uh, personal pronoun I. Instead, his self-designation is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. And to John, that was the more important thing. And I don't think he means that Jesus loved only him, although you can imagine the other disciples getting a little annoyed by John when he referred to himself in that way. But for John, this matter of being the recipient of the love of Christ was such an overwhelming major reality that it just eclipsed everything else. Who is John? Well, not the great author 
not the historian, not the brother of James and the son of Zebedee, what seems of greatest weight to the apostle is that he was loved by the Lord. Jesus loved him. For you and me, this same redemptive reality had best be at the core of our self-image, our identity. If you want to walk in gospel joy, let this sink in for you. You are loved of God. In a sense, Romans, the whole book is an exposition of that idea as Paul spells out how God loved us. But here he just states it briefly and simply. But the idea is, is just huge. And it's why I will often pronounce as our benediction at the end of the service, may you go in the central greatest, or in the, may you go in the awareness that the central greatest and most significant reality in your life is the love of Jesus, the King. All the other benedictions I use are taken right from Scripture, but that one I came up with on my own, and I, I do it because of, of Bible verses like this and because I have come to see how psychologically critical it is that we walk in this identity, that we are the beloved of God. Then the next verse says, you are called as saints. Maybe that goes uh, on our t-shirt as well. There we go. <laughs> Plenty of those on the internet. Saint, <laughs> saint t-shirt. Beloved saint. Some would think you're rather full of yourself to take that title, but we are, well, we, we are simply agreeing with God's word here. We are saints, not meaning by such that we are super spiritual, not meaning that we are holier than most, but simply that God has called us out of this corrupt world and brought us into his kingdom and has begun to transform our thinking and our behavior. So the word saint means holy one. It means set apart one. We are made holy by the merits of Jesus imputed to us. We are made holy by the Spirit of God who gives us new life and changed hearts. We are set apart to join with the church in glorifying Jesus and fulfilling our calling. And should this really be our identity? Should we think of ourselves as saints? Oh my, yes. Oddly enough, if we grasp it rightly, if we understood this, uh, that, that, that everything is all of grace... If we understood that, then we would be humbled by our status as saints, not puffed up by it. But brothers and sisters, this is so tremendously liberating. We are free from having to make it. We are already beloved saints. We're free from having to impress others. I mean, God already calls us His beloved. What is there left for a human to offer us? What is there left for a human to take away from us? Very, very little. I mean, really now, you are a beloved saint. Wow. Now, I want you to turn to each other and say that right now. Just give your neighbor one of these and say, you are a beloved saint. Go ahead. Say it to him. Say it. And then say, wow. Wow. <laughs> Some parents were a little unsure whether they could say that to their kids or not. Maybe I don't know. Uh, so now we turn to our main consideration for today. Those were the side roads, good side roads. It is also about uh, our main consideration today is also about our identity in Christ as those who are the called of the Lord. And we're going to spend the rest of our time on this idea, which is a major theme in your New Testament. Paul uses the language of calling throughout his letters 
One example, Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Romans 8.30, he says that those the Lord predestined, he also called. Jude does the same thing in his letter, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus and brother of James, to those who are the, what? The called, beloved in God. There it is again, the called, the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Boy, that's a good verse. There you get the, the uh, beloved emphasis as well as the focus on being called. Revelation 17, 14, the Lamb will overcome because He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And so we get a third t-shirt. <laughs> there you go. Called, chosen, and faithful. Again, I'm just like, wow. Put that on your t-shirt. Mostly put it on your heart. Our text in Romans gives us more about this calling. Verse 7 or 6 says, we are the called of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, it says, we are called as saints. So let's break down this idea of calling by looking at it under four heads. We begin by seeing the compulsion of the called. The compulsion of the called. Uh, here we note that the word called is a passive form of the verb, right? It implies that there is a caller, there is a source of the calling. Our text says plainly that the caller is Jesus. He is the one who roamed Palestine saying to certain individuals, follow me. He called them to himself to be his disciples, and they responded, which leads the curious to ask, did the disciples choose to follow, or were they compelled? Well, it's sort of like asking, did they enlist, or did they get drafted? At first glance, it appears they got drafted. We are not told that any of the disciples applied for a position on the Jesus team. Jesus just sovereignly and unilaterally chose them. So in John 15 verse 16, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And the language here sounds a lot more like being drafted, doesn't it? Some of you older brothers in here, how many of you were drafted at some point into the military? A, a few of you. Uh, anyway, compulsion more than choice. I'm not saying there was no choice for Peter and James and Matthew, but the emphasis is on the idea of being effectually drawn by Christ. Imagine a conversation with one of the disciples, let's say Thomas, and you ask him, did you choose to be a disciple of Jesus? How would he respond? I would think he would look at you kind of funny and say something like, well, not exactly, uh, I can't think of them seeing themselves of having, as having much of a choice here. They were simply drawn into the privilege of walking with Jesus. The Apostle Paul would have thought of it even less as a choice. You remember his story. He was knocked down, blinded, and arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wrote about being laid hold of. That's, that's the language he chose. Laid hold of by Christ. Not the other way around. No, no. So this calling of which Paul writes, it's more of a compulsion than a choice. There's no personal violation here. It is rather like a lover who would say, I was swept off my feet. 
Now, in the matter of gospel calling, we do recognize the distinction between an outward call and an inward call. When the preacher urges you to turn from your sin and put your faith in the risen Jesus, that is a calling of sorts. It is the outward call, perceptible to your ears, and clearly enough, that call is resistible. One may and many do refuse the outer call to faith. But there is another calling that we may refer to as the inward call, the life-giving, regenerating voice of the Father to the inner man. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him. What is that? This drawing. It is the it is the inner call. This isn't from a preacher. This is from the Spirit of God. J.I. Packer writes this. He says, ministers knock at the door of men's heart. The Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. Oz Guinness wrote a wonderful book all about calling. I commend it to you. And in it, he says this. Following Christ is not our initiative, merely our response in obedience. Nothing works better to debunk the pretensions of choice than a conviction of calling. Once we have been called, we literally have no choice. As, uh, now, to, to, a, to a called person, this lack of choice as one might see it, it's not a negative thing. No, no. It is a work of a good and gracious sovereign Savior. And, and indeed, this this compulsion, this calling, this inner call is the source of our humility and our gratitude and our eternal praise. We confess that if the Lord had waited on us to apply to Him, He would be waiting still. And the last thing the doctrine of calling would lead to is pride. Instead, it becomes our deepest source of joy and confidence because we know that our faith is in the work of God Himself, and therefore it is certain to last. But next, we ought to note that our calling is not just to a happy and satisfied passivity. No, no. We are called into an active engagement in the mission of our calling Savior. So this is your next point on your outline, the mission of the called. You can see in verse 5 what Paul says our calling is unto. He said it is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Now, how awesome is that? We graciously are drafted into the Lord's army, and we are given this incredible task, a blessed mission to make disciples, or as Paul words it, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. And that language sort of helps us understand what making disciples means. What is our goal when we lead someone to faith in Jesus, when we enfold them into the church, when we teach them? What is our goal? It is their growth in obedience. Obedient to what? Well, obedient to the law of God. More importantly, their obedience not so much to what, but their obedience to whom. And it is obedience to the Lord Jesus. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what we are praying for, increasing conformity to the will of our King. 
So think with me for a moment about this word, obedience, or obedient. It is a word that, uh, honestly, has fallen on hard times in recent, recent years. I don't know of any books out there, certainly nothing contemporary, entitled Growing in Obedience, or The Obedient Disciple. We think obedience, that's good for dogs, right? That's where you take your dog, to obedience class. But we are reluctant to apply the terms uh, to humans. How big a crowd would I draw if I offered an obedience class for humans? <laughs> now, that, that word now suggests to us a mindless, slavish adherence to the will of another. But listen, in Scripture, obedience, all good. Why? Because the one we obey is Jesus. If Christ is the master, obedience is all good. Why? Again, the one we obey is Jesus. And he is terrific and wonderful and life-giving. It is fulfilling and delightful to obey this master. You know, Frank Sinatra can sing of the glory of doing it all my way. But you and I know better than that, right? We have learned that real joy is found in living how? His way. We sing trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, some of you I know, uh, some of you I know, you grew up in a home, maybe a church, in which obedience was pounded down as a joyless duty. You didn't see you didn't see a lot of happy obedience. I get it. So you react negatively to a call to obey. And you want to say to me, no, no, pastor. Christianity, it's not about rules, but about a relationship. It's not about law keeping. It's about grace and faith. We have to get, we have to get past that kind of shallow either or thinking. It is not about obedience versus faith. It's not about rules versus a relationship. What is it? Paul calls it the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. The law keeping which flows out of trusting Jesus from the heart. The obedience of faith suggests the faith is the source of our obedience. We do what Jesus teaches because we trust his heart. We know He loves us and seeks our good. So His law, His counsel, for us it is sweet and it is desirable. It's not burdensome. It's not draining. No, no. We preach that Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus has you in your hand. So you go forth and do His will. Obey His commands and lay down your life for His mission. Which is to promote the obedience of faith in all the nation. That mission, he says again, advancing the obedience of faith in the gospel. Obedience to what end? To the end that the Lord's name be honored, hallowed, and exalted. For his name's sake. That's what it says. Ultimately, it's all about the fame of Jesus. It's all about his glory. This is so critical to keep front and center in our thinking. One question I like to ask men who are considering or entering the ministry 
pastoral ministry or missionary work, whatever it is, I ask, are, are you doing this for the Lord's sake, or are you doing it in order to help human beings? Now again, probably not an either or, right? <laughs> but I do want them to think about what is the central core of my motivation. Is your calling primarily to serve God or to serve people? And my experience is that those who go into pastoral work or missionary work primarily to do good for humans, those folks end up burned out and disillusioned. You know why? Humans are not as appreciative as they had hoped. Humans are not as responsive as they had hoped. And so if your sense of calling is not centered on Christ, that calling will not sustain you. Reggie McNeil writes this, bewildered and broken, spent leaders end up never accomplishing the great task of their life calling. They may claim that their failure is due to having too large a heart for people. This is a self-delusion. The problem is not having a heart large enough for God. By not developing the discipline of saying no to some needs that would claim them and other distractions, they could not say yes to the mission of God's call. He means that if you are pulled and controlled by the demands and expectations of people, you're not going to last. Certainly, we are called to be servants of one another, but one primary identity, our primary identity, I should say, has to be in relationship to our master, whose we are and whom we serve. That said, our master does point us to the harvest fields. He points us there with a specific reminder that the kingdom we are working toward is international in scope. He says, for all the nations. It includes all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth. The vision here is one in which the, the worship of the true and living God is going to be found in every place on the globe. John Piper is noted for saying that missions exist because worship does not. The worship of the Lord's name is the end of our missionary endeavor. It is for that we pray, for that we give, for that we labor. This vision is expressed beautifully in, in the hymn by Isaac Watts. I'm going to put that on the screen. Uh, so I'm going to read it, but as I read it, I want you to ponder this prayerfully. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun Doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. To him shall endless praise be made, and princes throng to crown his head. His name like sweet perfume shall rise with every morning sacrifice. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. And infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name. The praise of God's name. See it? Obedience to his law throughout, throughout the globe. That is the mission of the call of Jesus Christ. The calling is a gracious one, but my oh my, is it ever colossal and is it ever challenging? It is a mission only suitable for beloved saints. That leads us to our next thought. 
which is the power of the called. Oh, yeah. We need power. Give us power, Lord. How might we as Jesus followers live distinct and holy lives in a high-pressure world? How might we fulfill the commission with which we have been charged? The power is found in the calling itself when we grasp it. Here's three more P words. Got a bunch of P words to wrap up with today to go with power. The first is privilege. Privilege. We debate in our world about who has privilege, but God's word settles it. The called of God. They're the ones with privilege. Whether the Lord has called you to serve him in the United States Senate or in a Haitian village, the calling of Jesus always is a promotion. Got that? The calling of Jesus is always a promotion. There's another P word. And here we add another P word. Pleasure. Pleasure. The call of God is not unto a miserable existence of deprivation. It is a call to joy in his service. John Newton of Amazing Grace fame wrote this, which I think we who follow Christ need to understand. He says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. Duty and pleasure joined to part no more. Beautiful. And finally, our calling becomes our power to persevere. Persevere. So there's power, privilege, pleasure. You could throw promotion in there. I don't think I have enough blanks for that. Uh, and then there's uh, so power, privilege, pleasure, perseverance. Understanding our calling uh, is key for sure. Oz Dennis, in his book on calling, is brilliant on this point. He writes this. Every time the marsh gas of sloth rises from the swamps of modern life and threatens to overcome us, the call of God jerks us wide awake. You wait? Yeah. <laughs> call of God jerks us wide awake. I always like something like that toward the end of my sermon. Uh, get some of you back into the fold here. Against the most sluggish temptation to feel, who cares? Calling is the supreme motivation, the ultimate why. God has called us, and we are never more ourselves than when we are fully stretched in answering. There is no yawning in response to this call. The marsh gas of sloth. You know what that's about, don't you? You get up in the morning, but your heart just sort of seems to lack purpose. There's nothing really there to energize your labor. You become sleepy. You become apathetic. And what's the remedy? Calling. Calling. We remember whose we are and what we are about. We drink in the privilege and the pleasure so that the joy of serving is preeminent in our souls. The joy of following the call of Christ. And we keep on keeping on. The devil, he's going to seek to persuade you that your labor is in vain, that we are serving a deceitful master, that we are wasting our lives when we could be out there 
going for the gusto and all the way the world tells us to do it. The antidote to all of this is the calling of God. Walking worthy of it. Guinness goes on to write this. The truth of calling addresses all those entry points of sloth personally summoned by the creator of the universe. We are given a meaning in what we do that flames over every second and inch of our lives, challenged, inspired, rebuked, and encouraged by God's call. We cannot for a moment settle down to the comfortable, the mediocre, the banal, and the boring. The call is always to the higher, the deeper, and the farther. And that that would be a great place to end. But there's one more consideration that is somehow better yet. So we've seen the compulsion of the called, the mission of the called, the power of the call, and now we close with the master of the called. Sometimes we get the mission ahead of the master. Let me say that again. Sometimes we get the mission ahead of the master, and that can prove fatal. But the master is always first. He is before the mission. My last appeal to Oz Guinness, get his book. We are not primarily called to do something or go somewhere, but we are called to someone. We are not called first to special work, but to God himself. And that's my favorite line in the whole book. We're not called first to some special work, but to God himself. Central to our identity is this. We belong to Jesus. We are His. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Read that together again with me. You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Romans says we are the called of Christ Jesus. Of Christ Jesus, by the way, refers to possession. We belong to Him. Ever, ever been in a group or a place and feel that you did not belong? Most of us are familiar with that. Belonging is a key to identity. God's Word settles it for us. We are His. We belong because we belong to Christ, and Christ is above and before the mission. He's before and above the mission, and He's the end of the mission, and it is all for the glory of His name. This was great, and I would love to continue, but I told Amber I'd finish early so we could get up to the Blue Room. So here's how we're going to end. Stand with me, and we're going to recite together Romans 11:36, the end of Paul's great declaration and doxology. Uh, and by the way, we are ending here this morning, but we'll continue to worship in the Blue Room at our MPC lunch. Students and ministry leaders who are helping with the welcome and opening activity can head up now to prepare to welcome everyone to this event. So you guys go. The rest of us get to enjoy this verse and our closing hymn. Say it with me. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Bless you, Lord, for this calling. Unto your praise, unto our joy, unto perseverance, and most of all, unto Jesus Christ. Grant us this deep sense of our calling so that when the voice of the enemy comes in and when the marsh gas of sloth rises up and drains us of our energy, that our sense of calling would be preeminent and prevail in our souls until the day you call us home. Amen.